All right, guys, so today we have a short clip with Dr. Nicholas Radimus, a former mentor and professor of mine. He is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. He has a ton of publications in the field. He's very well known in the field, but doesn't have a huge following as far as Instagram and YouTube fitness because he hasn't really put himself out there. So I really wanted to get this recording done so that people could really see his experience and what he has to offer in the field. Today, we are gonna have a short primer on signaling for muscle growth. All right, guys, so we have Dr. Nicholas Radimus with us today. I'm fortunate enough to be a guest in his house, and he was actually a professor of mine for a while back at the College of New Jersey, so welcome, Nick. <laughs> yeah, David was one of our best students, obviously, <laughs> as you can tell. So uh, you just recently had a conference, right? Could you just give a little explanation of what that was? Well, I went to two conferences recently, the ACSM National Conference, which was in uh, Orlando uh, last month. I did a talk there on testosterone signaling. It's part of a big symposium that Dr. Bill Kramer put together. We were looking at growth hormones, the super family of growth hormones, testosterone signaling, uh, cortisol. Uh, Dr. Marin Fabrala did a talk on that. And then Dr. Brad Nindle gave a talk on IGF-1. So that was a, was a good conference. And then I just got back from the National Strength and Conditioning Association conference in, in Washington, D.C. Yep. So, busy month. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And so, actually, a lot of the people I've had on recently that I've been interviewing, like Michael Roberts, Cody Hahn, I mean, and they, a lot of these people know Dr. Radimus. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny, I was talking with somebody about this, how when somebody was your professor, I feel like it's always still like Dr. Radimus, you know, at least like in like a formal setting, you always just think of them in that way. Um, <laughs> I still call all my former professors doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's just something about it. Um, but, you know, so Dr. Radimus knows a lot of those people and, and vice versa. And you are actually, in the last year and a half, you became the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, right? Yes, yes. Um, which is a pretty big deal, you know, and, and you've been on how many papers now? About 190 plus, 193. Yeah. So, I mean, again, uh, a huge name in the field. And I think it just kind of goes to show that the, the top researchers, I mean, this doesn't just apply to this field, but a lot of fields, the top people aren't necessarily who's famous on Instagram. And, and nothing. there's nothing wrong with being famous on Instagram, but just because somebody has a huge following doesn't necessarily mean they know what they're doing. And just because somebody doesn't have a huge following doesn't mean that they're not an expert in the field. And, you know, just talking to Nick for, you know, the last hour or two, he's a very intelligent guy. And obviously from all the classes I've had with him, very intelligent guy, really knows this stuff very well. And, you know, and just to be clear for everybody, I mean, obviously, you know, huge name in the field now, you, you've done a lot. And actually you were on the, uh, what was it with Brad Schoenfeld? His dissertation, yeah, you know, you resistance were, training. Okay, mm -hmm. right. So you know, everybody does know Brad Schoenfeld now, but actually, uh, Dr. Radimus here was kind of like overseeing some of the stuff that he was doing. Well, I was on, I was on his committee. On his committee, he, that Brad did all the work. He did yeah, the job, right, but right. Yeah, yeah, just. Um, but you know, just just one more example. But you also you walk the walk, right? So uh, lifetime PRs. Could you say for like the big three squat, bench, deadlift? What you've done? Uh, about a six fifty deadlift, six thirty squat, and about four thirty bench. Drug free. Yeah. I it was all drug free. Right, right. So yeah, make sure that <laughs> mentioned. Don't don't edit that out. <laughs> right, right. They're not that impressive for drug for a drug athlete, but right, right. No, for a natural yeah, athlete, I mean, yeah. it's crazy. He's super strong, super big guy. Um, you can see his arms popping out of his sleeve oh, right now. So uh, very impressive guy. And again, thank you for coming on talking today. No problem, Dave. Anytime. So could you get a little while we were driving? You know, you're talking about recently. There's been some people have kind of like. I guess shoot away the idea of testosterone being a, a signal for hypertrophy, and, and you don't quite agree with that. Could you just explain the controversy well, there? Well, the testosterone certainly is a very potent anabolic hormone. I think most would acknowledge that it is an anabolic hormone. Where some of the discrepancies come in over the years is that the uh, acute response to resistance training, 
has been questioned as to how much of an effect that that has on the potential muscle hypertrophy and performance increases that take place after that. Some will say 0%, okay? Uh, most likely not 0%. I mean, how much of a percent? It all depends on the individual. It's very hard to say because testosterone, the whole signaling, when you look at how testosterone works, it's basically at least, as we know now, part of at least seven signaling pathways. When you think of all the potent anabolic intramuscular signaling pathways in skeletal muscle, testosterone is directly or indirectly involved with those. It's involved in satellite cell proliferation and differentiation as well. There's genomic, non-genomic signaling. Matter of fact, non-genomic signaling now has the ability to increase intramuscular calcium, which some have speculated might even help with acute performance. Again, there's not much research on that, yeah. but it's being implicated for so many different things that you know I think it's pretty safe to say having 0% effect is not realistic, right? but how much, whether it's 10, 12, 15, who knows, it really depends on the individual. But really, sometimes, we, we wrote a review paper back in the day that often gets cited on that, but 15, 20 years ago, all the data we had on resistance training was looking at circulation. Matter of fact, in the, uh, in the talk I just did, I threw up a slide there and said, you know, it's almost like the outside looking in. Yeah. Whenever you look at an area of research, you start with the most basic and then get more, more cellular. And all of the initial studies back in the day were looking at circulating concentrations right. in, in the body, whether right. it was resting, whether it was acute response. Matter of fact, most of the acute response is not because you're actually producing more. In males, it takes probably at least 25 to 30 minutes to produce new testosterone from LH signaling okay. in the brain. Okay. Uh, most of the studies are less than 30 minutes when you look at the acute response anyways. Plasma volume reductions as well as reduced clearance during exercise are pretty much the main reasons why you have that acute elevation. Really? Okay. So you really have to look at that. That's just part of the signaling process. Then certainly testosterone has to bind to receptors in order for it to be effective. We look at what then the field started going to what's happening with the receptor. Upregulation, downregulation. We know within two to three days following a workout, there's usually going to be some specific uh, significant upregulation that's thought to enhance the signaling process and its transcriptional activity. Now you look at that androgen receptor and there are a number of things, it's phosphorylation state has been studied a little bit here and there, okay? uh, even genetic elements on the actual, some individuals are more even responsive to testosterone based off of how many repeats there are okay. within the actual sequence of the uh, testosterone and the androgen receptor protein itself. Once the androgen receptor bound to testosterone makes its way into the nucleus, then it's helped by a lot of coactivator proteins and it's inhibited by some co-repressors. That whole positioning right there is a key area. That's where a lot of the potency is. Yeah. So really, if you want to examine how effective testosterone is, you have to really examine the whole signaling pathway, not just how much is in the blood or anything like right. that. You really have to be looking at everything it's doing because it's involved in so many things inside skeletal muscle. Which is interesting because that's, that's kind of what you said before, um, you know, we were talking about the papers on ribosomal biogenesis and you were saying how they're trying to put a, a certain percentage on it and it's interesting research perhaps but that it's, it's hard to do that or the same thing with satellite cell proliferation or anything like that when they're all kind of... They're all interrelated. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah. They're, it's, it's very There's hard There's crosstalk between all these, in, all these anabolic signaling pathways. Right. So that makes it hard to try to put a percent on. And again, I, I applaud the researchers who are trying to do that, but it, it, it's very difficult to do because everything's yeah. interrelated and everybody has a little bit different physiology. It's hard to really put percents on that. Yeah, you mentioned the collinearity there. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, I, I think it is interesting. I know their more recent papers did show that that ribosomal biogenesis was significant, mm -hmm. um, but maybe other factors are affecting that. So, you mm -hmm. know, how do you, you know, weed all that out? Well, that's out? where the proteins are being put together. Ultimately, it's protein synthesis, how much proteins you're synthesizing right. when it comes to an anabolism. So, you look at all the train, okay, along this chain, and, and, and even though you take males, okay, LH is the main signaling hormone mm -hmm. that's released that causes steroidogenesis in, in the testes, okay? But there are neuropeptides that have been identified over the years like the kiss peptins, okay? Mm -hmm. The kiss peptins are one group that will cause the release of LH from the, uh, from the... Sorry, we got a cat over here. Yeah, so. out the cat. But will cause LH release, which then is certainly going to lead to testosterone steroidogenesis. So those, what's affecting those neuropeptides? Exercise hasn't really been studied much. Obesity has a little bit. We know obesity reduces testosterone. Right. But what's happening all the way along, that's the interesting thing. It's, it's very, it's probably too simplistic to try to just look at a circulating level. Yeah. Okay, you really have to look at everything that's going on to try to. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear actually, I, I had not heard that before that a lot of the, uh, since these studies are so short term and like, like 30 minutes where that increase in growth hormone, testosterone, cortisol, like that might- Well, well GH, you can, see, GH is stored in somatotroph cells, yeah. and it's, it can be, it's released in pulsatile bursts. Okay. You produce more when you work out GH, and GH is really an aggregate of many different, over 100 isoforms now that really aggregate together to form uh, multiple levels of molecules that have different levels of biological activity, but T, it's a steroid, so it's produced and released. Yeah. So that, the timing, unless you're doing a longer workout, which hasn't really been looked at much there, do you actually produce more? I mean, in the studies we've done, if we've corrected the values for plasma volume reductions, you see the normal diurnal pattern. Yeah. Okay? The question then becomes, all right, well, why is there acute elevation? Is there some kind of significance to this? Well, imagine, you're working out with weights, now you get blood flow increase to muscles. So if you have an artificial elevation, and that's why I like to use the term elevation, because sometimes you use the term increase, Mm -hmm. It implies that you're producing more. Right, you're really right. not. You may not be. So you have that elevation now. If you have that acute elevation, even if it's in plasma volume reduction, that's thought to help drive testosterone binding to its receptor, given the fact that you're going to have greater blood flow to muscle during the workout. Now, again, that hasn't really been studied. That's just been theorized. But again, the hormone itself is the signal yeah. that creates the cascade intramuscularly. So, All right. And, and do you think these methods that we're studying now are going to be anytime in the near future able to be manipulated in order to, I mean, obviously a lot of the research, you know, there's not a lot of money in, in getting people bigger. You know, a lot of it is on it's like, all It's all clinical. That's yeah. All the money. That's right, right. Saying, yeah. But still, I'm, I'm sure at some point, even just like bodybuilders and stuff are going to be looking for ways to kind of manipulate these things in order to gain more muscle. Do you think that's on the horizon? Yeah. Well, one of the points I made in the talk I did at the ACSM was that when you look at the nuclear level, that's where these co-regulator proteins are. I think that's the next level of research because we know even with skeletal muscle, microRNAs have been studied the last 10, 15 years quite extensively. Some of these microRNAs are affecting uh, androgen receptor binding capacity. They're, they're actually uh, co-regulators yeah. of androgen and androgen receptor binding to the androgen response elements on DNA. So I think that's going to be an area that's interest. I know some companies now are looking at some of these co-regulators as a target of drugs to treat men with prostate cancer, anti-androgen effects. Yeah. Right? So not just blocking the testosterone from the source, but blocking it at the transcriptional area, which again is going to negate the, the effects. Right, right. So 
uh, usually if something's going to be done in a clinical sense, it won't be too much longer until some performance element might right. be studied after that. So I can I think that's a hot area of research. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, more individuals get involved in looking at how those coregulator proteins are being changed, not only by androgen concentrations, there's only a few studies looking at that, but just training in general. Right, very cool stuff. Because, I mean, if, if, let me speculate. Sure. If you, if you train consistently, and if you have the ability to upregulate some of these coactivators, technically then that could increase the potency of testosterone without even affecting the testosterone production. Yeah. So again, you have to look at the whole signaling pathway. And I think there's a bright future there for a lot of research looking at. When I did my dissertation back in, uh, well, 1998, around there, 1999, there were about between 30 and 40 known co-regulators mm-hmm. of an androgen receptor binding in at DNA. Now, depending on how you define a co-regulator, there's more than 300. Yeah. And I, I think we're just going to continue down the road even find more. Yeah. But then their actual role that they play as a function of training really needs to be studied. Right, right. 